right, good morning, everybody. Oh, everybody's attention just went over there. That's all right. All right, why don't we pray together before we jump in, back into Ecclesiastes this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, our Father, I thank you for um, gathering your people together as you do each week here at Redemption Church. Um, we're here to praise you, God. We're here to, to know Jesus for who he really is, to make Jesus known for who he really is. I pray, Lord, that you do that for us, uh, that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to, to know you, to know your great love for us. Um, God, speak to each one of us. Uh, have us hear what you have for us this morning. And change our hearts to be more and more like you. And make us a people who look more and more like you. Uh, so that we make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go ahead. We're going to jump into Ecclesiastes this morning. We're in chapter 4. Um, if you want to join me there. Chapter 4, we're just going to read the first three verses for right now. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. Um, it'll also be on the screen, I believe, if you want to follow along with us there. And this is what it says. It says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So far in Ecclesiastes over the last few weeks, um, we've kind of followed the preacher. He's taken us on this quest to see what we might uh, do in this life, what we might be able to do to gain the most out of life. And then in the end on that quest, we found that there's, there's just nothing that truly gains us anything since we all die in the end and we can take nothing with us. And then last week in chapter 3, uh, we turn to look at things from like a different perspective, to see things from God's perspective, kind of outside of time, outside of space, so that we can see that, that we are actually made for the present. We're, we're made to live day by day, not made to gain something for the future, but made to enjoy doing the work of being God's image bearers in the here and the now. And now in chapter 4, we've turned not really to go on another quest with the preacher, but rather to take a closer look at the evil that we find in this present world. It's not a fun task. It's not maybe the way we hope to start the morning, but it's a necessary one, and we'll see why that is. Maybe there's nothing more saddening than to, to simply look, to actually like let our gaze, let our focus fall on the many grotesque evils of this world, things like oppression, things like slavery, we don't like to think on it. We don't like to talk about it. But this is, the this is the pivot that the preacher has taken, and so we're going to follow him there. In this world, there's oppression. In this world, there are oppressors and there is oppressed. There are people with power who use other living, breathing, uh, image of God-bearing people to get things for themselves. Right? In the Old Testament, God's own people endured Slavery in Egypt, our own country in the United States has gained its wealth by shipping people here from Africa in horrific conditions on boats. And when they got here, if they made it, if they got here, they were bought 
They were traded. They were ripped from their families. They were beaten. They were bruised. They were even killed. And all of that was for free labor, right? It was for more profit for the plantation owners, more profit for those in power, and more power for the same people. That's not just a thing of the past either. It's not just Old Testament and early American type stuff. Slavery still exists around the world today in many forms. It's a here and now thing. It's real. You and I may very well benefit from, of it, uh, from some of it by which products we buy. The preacher doesn't actually talk about slavery though. He just talks about the oppressed. He talks about the oppressor. And that's a dynamic that... that, that played out all around us, not just in some like dark corners of the world and some places in our past. It's in our homes, in our neighborhoods, where one spouse oppresses the other or where parents maybe even abuse their children. In a room this size, there's likely some who have been on the lowly side of that. There's also likely some who have been on the power side of that. There's some who have been abused. There's some who have been abusers. There's probably some of us that have been both. It's everywhere. And it's kind of tough to talk about. It's tough to observe. And maybe that's part of the reason why there's nobody to comfort the oppressed and to wipe away their tears. Maybe it's because we don't want to look at it. But the bigger reason, the part that we don't like to accept, is that there's no end to it. That's what the preacher says. There's no end to it. The power just stays in the hands of the powerful. The The power stays in the hands of the oppressor. And even when they get taken out and the power passes to someone else, they become an oppressor and they oppress people. Oppression is happening and it will keep happening. It's really tough to deal with. The preacher laments that maybe it's better to have never even been born than to know the sort of evil that exists in this world. Where does it come from and what do we do about it? In Ecclesiastes 4.4, which is the next verse, the preacher says this. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So envy. All the oppression, all the evil is the fruit of our envy, says the preacher. We want what our neighbor has. We want more than what our neighbor has. If they have it, why shouldn't you and I have it? And so uh, we just go about clamoring to get it, whatever it may be. But that's a never-ending cycle because as soon as you, like, climb up one step, there's still something more to attain. Somebody else will have something else that you don't have or that you want. And it's like everybody's just trying to climb up one another, and so... uh, We step on each other's heads to lift us up above somebody else, but then somebody's foot is in our face, and there's no top to the pile. It's a striving after the wind. Each step up, each thing that we grab for, each thing that we attained, we find that it's fleeting because there's always more to go. But if everybody's doing it, what's the alternative? Verses 5 and 6, it says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after a wind, after wind. So the one who like just doesn't want any part of that, doesn't want anything to do with all the clamoring people, uh, maybe is tempted to just drop out to like take nothing more than what they already have and then contribute nothing else. 
but this isn't the way either. The preacher calls that person a fool because they just eat themselves up, right? Better is a handful of quietness, the preacher says. It's a picture of refusing the clamor of all the rivaling of one another out of envy and refusing the deafening sound of like the inner turmoil of the fool who stews to himself with his hands folded and his idleness just rotting. A handful of quietness. Just going about life modestly but purposely. Envy grows all kinds of evil in us. The preacher continues to show us the ways. We're going to read 4 verses 7 through 16. He says again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. So we see another evil right off the bat in this passage. Maybe it all seems disconnected. We'll try to connect it. There's another evil. Besides like the easy to spot, uh, just super oppressive types of evil that we see in the world, it's, there's another evil, and it's when a person who has no family works endlessly, toiling, piling up riches, and never stopping to ask, what is all this for? What am I doing all this for? Never working for the sake of others or, or really for the sake of anything at all. Never stopping to actually enjoy the work. Never stopping to enjoy the fruit of the work. Just endless toil, endless grasping for a top that does not exist. This character in those first few verses reminds me of Charles Dickens' Scrooge. It's an incredibly sad picture. But there are also many people who exist like this who though they actually have a family and they have people who are their friends, they work and they work and they work to acquire or to build whatever it is that they set out after and perhaps it started out as though they, they had to work to make a better future for themselves and for their family or whatever, but so many people just work and work and work and never stop to consider what it's all for or to notice who's being left behind in their work or, or who are they even pushing away or how are they isolating themselves. Spouses forget spouses. Parents forget to be with the children that they have for the time that they have them. It's a heartbreaking picture. Verse 9 through 12 sort of pauses in the middle of that passage to paint a picture of a better way. I think it's sort of a call back to the life of those who are content in the present, those who are happy with a handful of quietness. They don't forget to be with others. 
So they have others. They, they help each other. They keep each other warm. They protect one another. The scripture says a three-fold cord is not easily broken. And that this is the reward, right? The being with others and living in each moment with one another. Like down deep, don't we want to be with and to know and to live life with one another more than we want anything that we could trade any one of us for? We were made for that. That's really good. But we so easily throw it away out of envy and out of discontentment. And what we see at the end of chapter 4 is the preacher, perhaps Solomon, giving us the insight of a king. The king is at the top, right? The king's at the very top. All the people are below him. But even at the top, all he had left was to realize that all the people under him would pass just as he too would pass and he would be forgotten. And what's left then but to envy another king who will take it all and have more even. The preacher wants us to see that when we look at all the evil that exists in the present that that maybe we want to escape and get away from, It all stems from our envy. And he wants us to recognize that envy still tempts us. It makes promises to us and it entices us. But there's nothing down that road for us that's good, either for us or for others or for this world. Getting everything you could ever dream up or everything you ever wanted in the end uh, won't get you to the end of being tempted with envy. There's no end to it. There's no actual reward in the end. It just keeps happening. You just keep wanting more. It just creates more evil for ourselves and for others. Every week in Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of happy thoughts. Let's read this, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. I've known this bit of scripture for a long time, especially that bit about uh, not making a vow that you can't pay. But I think I just knew that as, as a rule for a long time. I didn't really get the heart of it. I think I learned it the hard way. Like over the years, I've had my own dreams. And I mean like the dreams that actually kind of grew from my own discontentment with what the Lord has for me today in the here and now and in the present. Dreams that I thought I had to make a reality. And at its core, it's because I wanted to do things that were bigger than me. 
right? I wanted to be something bigger than I am. I, I wanted to uh, prove myself, though I don't think that anybody was asking me to do that. I ultimately just wanted things that I didn't have, and I was full of envy. But listen to this. The preacher said, a dream comes with much business and a fool's mouth with many words. This is true, right? A dream comes with much business. Like when making a dream uh, into a reality becomes our focus, we'll do anything to see it through. Whether the dream is like building a church or a business or a career or some maybe idyllic picture of what we want our life to look like, when our focus becomes making our dream into reality, we'll make vows, we'll go into debt, and we'll forsake those around us to make it happen. When our focus is on making a dream a reality, we lose sight of the present reality. And so we can't see that we become the oppressor. We can't see that we start losing the people that matter the most to us. Maybe worse than losing them even, we, we get caught up in the dream and we start to push the people that matter most to us away. Or we, I think even worse, is we actually use the people we think that we love, we pick them up, we use them, we ring them out for all that they're worth. We'll only want people then for the resources they can loan us or that they can give us to complete our dream. And that's not the end. Most absurdly is that God becomes the same thing to us, right? What we want for him, uh, from him is what he can loan us and what he can give us. We, we'd use him up too if we could. We'll even make vows that we can't follow, in, follow through on and presume on God. All in all, we enact and we become immersed in all the evil that the preacher just unpacked in chapter 4. I read this in another sermon back in the fall, but I want to read it again. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. And he wrote this. He said, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God and by others and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts if he is, as if he is the creator of Christian community, as, his dreams, as if his dreams bind men together. And when things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of the brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally a despairing accuser of himself. The visionary dreamer in me does exactly that. It demands from God it demands from others. It sets up my laws, passes my judgments. As a visionary dreamer, I believe and act as if it is my dream that would bind us together. And so I take and I take and I take from other people. But in the end, I found that I have become an accuser of those who have loved me. I've become an accuser of God. And finally and at length, a despairing accuser of myself. I mean, I'm this is my testimony. Not only did I not bind anybody or anything together, truly, 
but I broke people and I broke relationships. Why do I tell you that? How does it all fit together? What are we, what are we getting at? Well, I, I think that this passage is leading us to see and what I hope that will be our takeaway is that this visionary dreaming is ironically incredibly blinding. We get sucked back out of the present and into living in the future so quickly and so easily. We, we think we see clearly what could be and what ought to be. We often feel like we have a great dream that's right and that's good for the world. And so we just get to it without really thinking twice. We just jump into the, the business of our dreams and we don't see all the damage that we leave in our wake. And now you might think, well, I'm not really a dreamer. I'm not really somebody with, with these big dreams, so this probably isn't really me. But I think that could be an illusion too. Because your big dream may not be building something big and successful or, or becoming a big star. Your dream doesn't have to be super flashy. It could just be a particular idea of what your family will look like. It could be a particular idea of what your kids will do with their life or what they will look like or how they will interact with people, uh, how your spouse will enjoy the things that you enjoy, uh, how your friends will be a part of your life, how you'll get to be a part of their life. Your dreams don't have to be wild. They don't even have to be bad to bring this stuff out in the you. They just have to make you unhappy with the fact that you haven't gotten everything that you might have wanted today. I think that this passage suggests, and I'm suggesting you might blindly be living in this way. We all might. Oppressing others, using people up and pushing them away, playing God. And Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, that we just read a few minutes ago, is just packed with warning signs that we might be living like that. And the warning signs are found in how we approach the Lord. Verses 1 through 3 again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they're doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Or let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 7 says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The warnings here have to do with what we come to the Lord saying and doing. What we come to the Lord saying and doing can serve as a warning signal to whether our heart is covered up in envy, to whether our heart is discontent. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that we need to police our prayers, police everything that we say to God, what, what words we are allowed to use and what words are not allowed to use. I don't want to get into that game. That's not the point. Actually, I genuinely, genuinely believe that we should pray whatever is on our heart. I mean, if you're mad, if you're hurting, if you're lost, you should say it. If you want to pray for riches, if you want to pray for a private jet and a, and a nice big fancy car like the TV preachers do, I actually think you should pray that. Not because I necessarily think that we should get whatever we want or because I think that God is some genie in a lamp, but because at least we're coming to him and at least we would come to him honestly. And I think he's good and I think he uses our prayers to shape us and to change us into what he wants us to be, which is good for us. 
His saying no to a prayer can be just as good as saying yes. But what I want for us is just to simply pause this morning to observe and consider our time with God. I think we should listen in on our prayer life and see what we find. What does it expose? How do you come into God's presence? How do you come into his presence? Do you rush into his presence with your sacrifices or more likely in our day, just like a quick admission of your sins? Are you really there just to get to the part where you tell him everything that's going wrong with the work that you've been doing and what you need from him to make sure you get what you want or accomplish what you want? What happens when you're not getting what you want? What does your time look like with God then? What if you listen to your time with him today? On this Sunday morning, when we've come in to worship the Lord together, what are you here for? It's okay. Whatever you're here for, it's okay, but could you observe it? Could you consider it? Have you come with a set of expectations? Have you come to uphold your part of some kind of deal that you think that you have with him? Have you come to get something that you want in some sort of trade? If you just listen to your prayers, what are they like? Are they full of your words? Or is there time to listen? If you step back to observe what you are like when you come to him, what do you see? It's been good for me just to continue to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a good practice of letting my words be slow and letting my words be few. It allows me to draw near to listen to the words that he's already given. And there's one part that continually speaks into this discontentment thing. And it keeps reminding me of the actual fruit of my discontentment. It says, give us this day our daily bread. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Give us, our day, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The way those two thoughts are paired together in the Lord's Prayer is a reminder of what happens when we go looking for more than our daily bread. What happens when we seek to pile up more than what God has for us in the here and now. When our envious dreams lure, lure us away from the present. We sin against God. We sin against others. We sin against ourselves. We pile up debts that we cannot pay. Whether that's debts of money or debts of affection or debts of devotion and time, we use people, we oppress them, we push God and we push people away and we try to play God ourselves. If I have sinned against somebody, it's a debt that has arisen from my discontentment and my envy. I'm reminded in the Lord's Prayer that I've been forgiven already in Jesus Right? We got to hear that this morning. Like he's paid our debts. He's forgiven us for the envy. He's forgiven us for the discontentment and all the evil that comes from all that. So this isn't about how to fix all the messes that we've made. I think that's a good news reminder for us this morning. But in this prayer, I'm also reminded that others, you know, sin against me. And when they do, they are living outside of the present reality of that grace of Jesus Christ. And that gives me eyes to see them the way that he sees them, to give them the same grace that God has given me and that he's extended towards them. And that's the point. He changes me from envious to gracious. 
when I come and I let my words be few, he changes me from envious to gracious, from discontent to happy with what he has for me today, even when I don't get what I want, because I know that what he gives me is not just good, but it's the best, that there's truly nothing better. So we're going to close. We're going to move into a time of response. And this is what I want to leave you with. This is what I want you to consider. Just consider the posture of your heart this morning. Like take a few moments to reflect and to observe and to consider how you come to him. What do you see? Are your words many or few? Is there clamoring for him to like work to make your thing happen or give you what you want? Or is there peaceful surrender to what he has for us today? Is there envy or is there discontentment? I just want you to take a few moments to Consider that to, res- to reflect and then to respond and acknowledge it and-, and-, and to talk to the Lord in prayer. You can even grab somebody around you, a friend, whatever, and pray together if you'd like. I'd love for you to be able to do that. And we're going to move into this time. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us in worship as they do. And we'll come and we'll take communion together. And as you come, you can come down the middle. We'll take the bread. We'll dip it in the wine or the juice. And this is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was given for us that frees us from being captive to uh, envy and discontentment and staying in a future or in a past when you're created for the present. And so if you're a believer, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and to take with us. When we do this, we remember Jesus Christ and we are proclaiming him to one another And we need to hear it in our actions. We need to be reminded. We need to proclaim it to one another. As you come, you can also give your tithes and offerings in the back. Maybe you do that online. But, I mean, we're talking about uh, recognizing that God is our provider, being content with what he gives us no matter what. And even in this moment, as you maybe, maybe that slips out of your account or whatever, take a moment to remember God is your provider, to offer worship back to him for who he is and for what he's done. And I'm going to pray for us, and I'd encourage you to sit and to reflect and to respond in prayer, and when you are free, to come and to take and remember and proclaim Jesus Christ together with us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.